starting in Matthew 22 today. <coughs> Last week we talked about the parable of the wicked vine dressers. I want to give you that definition for vineyard again, so you can let it sink in. A spot selected for its fertility, <coughs> separated from the surrounding fields, and cultivated with special care, with a view solely to fruit. <coughs> May we be a part of that nation that bears its fruit. And renders to the the master its fruit in its season. Let's start in verse 1 or read through verse 14. <coughs> and Jesus answered and spoke to them again by parables and said, The kingdom of heaven is like a certain king who arranged a marriage for his son and sent out his servants to call those who were invited to the wedding and they were not willing to come. <coughs> again he sent out other servants saying, Tell those who are invited, See, I have prepared my dinner, my oxen and fatted cattle are killed. And all things are ready, come to the wedding. But they made light of it and went their ways, one to his own farm, another to his business. And the rest seized his servants, treated them spitefully, and killed them. When the king heard about it, he was furious. And he sent out his armies, destroyed those murderers, and burned up their city. And he said to the, his servants, The wedding is ready, but those who were invited were not worthy. And therefore go into the highways, and as many as you find, invite to the wedding. <clears throat> so those servants went out into the highways and gathered together all whom they found, both bad and good, and their wedding hall was filled with guests. When a king came in to, see, in to see the guests, he saw a man there who did not have on a wedding garment. So I said to him, Friend, how did you come in here without a wedding garment? And he was speechless. The king said to the servants, Bind him hand and foot, take him away, and cast him into outer darkness, there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. For many are called, but few are chosen. So we see here the contempt that these people who were invited had, not only for the servants, but for the king himself. Because when you treat a king's servants in such a way, it shows your great hatred for the king himself. And that if he were to come in their midst, if it was even possible, they would kill him too. They would have nothing to do with him. And see, these servants in verse 3, <clears throat> they were already invited. This wasn't their first invitation. This wasn't their first call. Uh, they were already invited to the wedding. And you see in verse 3 that were they not able or were they not willing? They were not willing. They were able. So the excuses you see them make weren't legitimate excuses. So that would make them not able. They were flimsy excuses. In fact, let's just turn to Luke 14 just for a second. <clears throat> Jesus spoke a similar parable at a Pharisee's house one time. Probably about three to six months before he spoke this parable we see in Matthew. <clears throat> Luke 14, starting in verse 15. Now one of those who sat at table with him heard these things. He's talking about taking a lowly place at a banquet, at a wedding feast. One of them said, Blessed is he who shall eat bread in the kingdom of God. Amen. That's right. That's true. And then he said to him, A certain man gave a great supper and invited many, and sent his servant at supper time to say those who were invited, already invited, Come, for all things are now ready. They all with one accord began to make excuses. The first said to him, I have bought a piece of ground, and I must go and see it. I ask you to have me excused. Another said, I have bought five duke of oxen, and am going to test them. I ask you to have me excused. So another said, I have married a wife, and therefore I cannot come. Now, any of those excuses you see given there, do they, do they really uh, excuse someone from going to a great feast prepared by a master? It shows how they make light of it. They don't care. Uh, their excuses are very flimsy. And you can tell if someone really wants to be somewhere by the kind of excuses they'll make. 
Uh, and you see the response of the master in verse 21. So the servant came and reported these things to his master, and the master of the house, being angry, said to his servant, Go out quickly into the streets and lanes of the city, and bring here the poor and the maimed and the lame and the blind. That's those who were not uh, esteemed in the sight of men. Uh, and the servant said, Master, it is done as you commanded, and it still is room. So the master said to the servant, Go into the highways and hedges, and compel them to come in, that my house may be filled. For I say to you that none of those men who were invited, the ones who were originally invited, shall taste my supper. And so you see the anger of the master there and uh, you know, we look at this parable in Matthew 22 it says he was furious. In Matthew 22 they're killing the servants and putting them to death. In Luke 14 there's no mention of killing or putting the servants to death. They're just basically making excuses. You don't have to kill one of God's servants for God to be angry with you. You don't have to put them to death or shut them up permanently. You can simply make flimsy excuses for a lack of obedience to God, and God will still be angry with you. And so we need to not make excuses. Many people in the world, their main, uh, very, their main doctrine in Christianity is excuses for their sin. That's what their whole theology is based around. Excuse for this, excuse for that, excuse why I can't do this, excuse why I can't do that. And the Bible says you can do all things through Christ who strengthens you. So the master of the house was angry because they made excuses. And really, they, they showed their disgust for the master. Because they already knew about this. And if you already know about something, and you know it's going to come at a certain time, okay, well, I'm not going to plan anything during that time because this is important to me. I know I'm going to make time for this. But they showed their disgust for the master himself by making these excuses they made. And so he, they were not willing to come. They were invited. They were invited several times and were not willing to come. It says in verse 5 of Matthew 22 that they made light of it and went their own ways. It doesn't mean they made light of it in the sense that they were like laughing at it or making fun of it. They neglected it. Uh, they, had no, they were unconcerned about it. They could care less about it. Went to his own farm, went to his business. And they seized the rest of his servants, treated them spitefully, and killed them. So let's just talk about some people who were, who, uh, just to define who we're referring to here. Uh, the king in this parable in Matthew 22 is God the Father. Of course, the son is, is Jesus. <coughs> the servants who went out and told and invited and called are the prophets, the apostles, and the preachers. Of course, those who originally were invited were the Jewish people. They are the original people of God. God set them apart for be his people. And those who are eventually invited is the rest of the world. So when just like you see the Apostle Paul in the book of Acts, when he goes to a certain city, where did he go first? He went to the synagogues. And they reject him, they consider himself not worthy, where did he go? The Gentiles. Because they wanted eternal life. They wanted it. The Jews did not want it. And so he turned to others and said, Those who were not who were invited were not worthy. That word worthy there in verse in the end of verse 8 means deserving or fit. Uh, not in the sense that we're, any of us are deserving or of the kingdom of God or deserving of salvation, deserving of forgiveness, but they considered themselves not fit for it. They didn't want it. It's basically what it's saying. They did not want it. They did not want it. And so they considered themselves not worthy for it, not deserving for it, not fit for it. So they did not cling on to it. It says in verse 9, Therefore go into the highways. And the word highways there means a, a, a busy road leading out of the city. So there's very much wisdom in finding a very busy public place to be able to preach the gospel to as many people as possible to compel them to come in. That's exactly what Jesus is saying here. He says, go to the highways. And as many as you find, invite to the wedding. Now, does he say, you know, pick and choose who you're going to invite? As many as you find, invite to the wedding. Because God is impartial. God does not play favorites. Uh, the ones who originally his children, in fact, he invited them many times. When they chose to reject, he invited others. So they went to the highways and gathered together all whom they found, both good and bad, and the wedding hall was filled with guests. It was filled with guests. But a king came in to see the guests. Now the word see here, it doesn't mean like, I, okay, I see Malachi. Uh, it doesn't mean I, I see Brother Tracy with my physical eyes. It literally means to intently look to look beyond what the eye actually sees. And when God the Father looked beyond, in this parable, what the eyes actually see, 
he found a man who was there who did not have on a wedding garment. Now, if you go to a wedding and a man comes there with shorts and t-shirt and flip-flops, he's going to stick out like a sore thumb, isn't he? Yeah, he's going to stick out like a sore thumb. And so he was out of place. And so he asked him, friend, how did you come in here without a wedding garment? Basically, why are you coming here and disrespecting me? Why are you coming here and disrespecting my son's wedding? Why do you think you can come to this place in such a way? And of course, he was speechless. Why? Because he knew better. He knew better. Now, I'll tell you, friends, I want to talk about this wedding garment here. For There's lots of confusion about what this wedding garment is and uh, how you get it and how it stays clean. So let's, let's look at some scriptures. What about Ephesians chapter 5? Because the people who attempt to come to the wedding without the wedding garment on, they know better. They know better than to come in that way. <coughs> They know better than to consider themselves one of the wedding guests. Ephesians 5, verse 22. <coughs> and this is something I spoke on at the uh, my sister-in-law's wedding. Let's we'll start in verse 22. Wife, submit to your own husbands as to the Lord. Let's just stop right there for a second. Are you doing that, wife? Are you submitting to your husband as to the Lord? Or are you making it harder on him? You're making his life difficult. Are you one of those women who are better off if your husband were up in the attic corner than to be around you? Wives, are you submitting yourself to your husband? For the husband is the head of the wife, but also Christ is the head of the church. Now, I've heard this saying, I don't think it's a biblical saying, that the wife is the neck. Um, where does the scripture say that? The wife's not supposed to be turning the husband's head. The Lord turns the husband's head as he's seeking the Lord. He follows the Lord, and the Lord leads him. The woman is the body. Not the muscle that turns the head. It's as bad as not submitting. Christ is also the head of the church, and he is the Savior of the body. Can you imagine us saying to the Savior, oh, I'm going to turn your head, Lord, and tell you where to go. That's basically what a wife is saying. She says, I'm the neck of the head. I'm going to tell my husband where to go. I'm going to tell him what to do. That's the comparison here we're dealing with. Therefore, just as the church is subject to Christ... Let the wives be subject to their own husbands in everything. Everything. Like anything left out there. Husbands, love your wives. Just as Christ loved the, also loved the church and gave himself for her. They might sanctify and cleanse her with the washing of the water by the word. Husbands, are you loving your wives as Christ loved the church? Are you serving her? Are you laying your life down for her? Are you making things hard on her? Are you washing her in the water of the word? Are you washing her in the water of the word? That he might sanctify and cleanse her with the washing of the water by the word. Verse 26, verse 27. They may present her to himself a glorious church, not having spot or wrinkle or any such thing, but that she should be holy and without blemish. So husband ought to love their own wives as their own bodies. He who loves his wife loves himself. Well, no one ever hated his own flesh, but nourishes and cherishes it, just as the Lord does the church. For we are members of his body, of his flesh, and of his bones. For this reason, a man shall leave his father and mother and be joined to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. This is a great mystery, but I speak concerning Christ and the church. You see, marriage is, is a picture of Christ and the church. Husband's the head of the wife, Christ is the head of the church. We're the body of Christ. And this is we want to wash our, our wives, husbands want to wash their wives in the water of the word that we might sanctify them and cleanse them. Christ wants to wash us in the water that may sanctify us, set us apart and cleanse us, that he might present us to himself a glorious church, not having spot or wrinkle or any such thing, but that she should be holy and without blemish. Can you imagine a a bride walking down the aisle with you know the typical white dress on but having spots all over it? A little bit of you know chocolate ice cream, a little bit of blood on it, lots of stains on it, real wrinkled up. I mean, she would be out of place. She wouldn't be as she's expected to be. And you know, after the after the wedding happens, there's a union together, and now the husband and wife begin to cohabitate together. But not until then. 
And so right now, as, as the, the bride of Christ, we're, we are betrothed to him. And he wants to present us to himself as a bride without spot, without wrinkle, without blemish, but holy. As we heard this morning when Brother Tracy prophesied, Brother John was speaking from the Word of God, there's admonishments going on. Christ wants, and this is the only kind of bride he's going to receive, is when it's holy, without blemish, without spot, without wrinkle. Ones that have their sins washed away in his blood. Ones who are, who are living holy. Not ones who are going to walk down the aisle with their wedding garment stained. Now, there's this lie going around in American Christianity for the most part that the, the wedding garment we have on is the, the righteous acts of Jesus Christ. Um, please answer me this. How can that become stained? How can that have spots? How can that have wrinkle if that's really what it is? It can your 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 garment can be spotted, can be stained, can be wrinkled because you are required to live holy. I mean actually lived out holiness unto the Lord. Not just trusting in what Christ lived out on earth and having that transferred to you. Um He's He's gone now. That couldn't possibly be spotted or wrinkled. He lived his life. He's persevered to the end. He's pleased the Father to the end. But that, but this, in verse 30, we are members of his body, of his flesh, and his bones. For this reason, a man shall leave his father and mother, and shall be jo- become, joined to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. That's talking about when Christ returns. You're going to be joined to Christ. You're going to cohabitate with him forever. But the only ones who will cohabitate with Christ forever are those who have persevered to the end. Those who are living blamelessly, who are without blemish and are holy, without spot and without wrinkle. And this is the reason why, look in verse 25, he gave himself for her. Why? Listen to this atonement here. That he might sanctify and cleanse her with the washing of water by the word. That he might present her to himself a glorious church not having spot or wrinkle or any such thing, but she should be holy and without blemish. One of the main reasons for the atonement, what Christ did on the cross, is this right here. This right here is it. And so we see in Ephesians 5, we see that this wedding feast, we see this wedding garment he was missing. He was not holy. He was not without blemish. He was spotted. He came in the wrong attire. And what happened to him? He was kicked out. He was not allowed to stay. Let's go to uh, Revelation chapter 19. Verse 7. says in verse 7 of Revelation 19, Let us be glad and rejoice and give him glory, for the marriage of the Lamb has come, and his wife has made herself ready. And to her it was granted to be arrayed in fine linen, clean and bright, for the fine linen is the righteous acts of Jesus Christ. Oh, did I say something more than that? That's not it. So, so there's two things here going on in verse 9. It was granted her to be arrayed. Well, where does that granting come from? From the blood of Jesus Christ cleansing us from our past sins. That's the granting there. Because let's be honest, friends, we've all been wicked in the past. We've all sinned against God. We all need the cleansing. And so that, that's the granting there of the, being arrayed in this linen. But what is the fine linen? Is it the righteous acts of Jesus Christ transferred to you? It's the righteous acts of the saints. But no one can be righteous. No, not one, right? Romans 3? What's that referring to? Yeah, all having sin, Romans 3 is referring to. It's not referring to any kind of doctrine of total depravity or doctrine of we can't obey God in this, this present age. It's referring to all having sin, Jews and Gentiles alike. 2 Corinthians chapter 11. In <clears throat> verse 2. Paul writing to the Corinthian church, he says, For I am jealous for you with godly jealousy. For I have betrothed you to one husband, 
that I might present you as a chaste virgin Christ. A virgin, a chaste virgin, someone who's kept herself pure for that day of her wedding when she can give this priceless gift to her husband or for faithfulness to him before she meets him, before she's joined together with him. And Paul had a godly jealousy because he betrothed the Corinthian church to one husband. Not to commit spiritual fornication and have many husbands, but betrothed to one husband, Jesus Christ. You know, when in Revelation chapter 3, this is mentioned too, talking to the church of Sardis in Revelation chapter 3 and verse 1, <coughs> the angel of the church, or the messenger of the church in Sardis write, These things say he who has the seven spirits of God and the seven stars, I know your work, that you have a name, that you are alive, but you are dead. Be watchful and strengthen the things that which remain, that are ready to die, for have not found your works perfect before God. Remember, therefore, how you have received and heard. Hold fast and repent. Therefore, if you will not watch, I will come upon you as a thief, and you will not know what hour I will come upon you. You have a few names, even in Sardis, who have not defiled their garments, and they shall walk with me in white, for they are worthy. He who overcomes shall be clothed in white garments, and will not blot out his name from the book of life, but will confess him, his name before my Father and before his angels. He has an ear to hear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. So the, the things that he says with the seven spirits, seven spirits according to Revelation 5-6, is the eye of God that sees all things. So he's saying, listen, I see all things. And if your garment is spotted, I know. I know it's spotted. And only those who are spotted now who repent and or obey the things which they had heard and begin to watch, only those I will not come upon as a thief in the night. Only those I will not blot the name of the book of life. Only those will walk with me in white. Only those I will confess before the Father and before the angels. And so this one who, who has eyes and sees everything and who holds the messengers who are the seven stars, the messengers of the church, he holds them in his hand. These, he's speaking through the messenger and he sees all things and he's telling you, only those who are watching, only those who are obeying, only those who repent who are disobeying now. If there's hope for those who are disobeying now, they must repent though. Must have their garments cleansed again and walk worthy, not defile their garments. For those are the ones who are worthy. Those are the ones who take part in the tree of life. Let's go to Colossians chapter 1. <coughs> Starting in verse 21. And you who once were alienated and enemies in your mind by wicked works, yet now he has reconciled in the body of his flesh through death to present you holy and blameless and above reproach in his sight, if, speak to little word there, if indeed you continue in the faith, grounded and steadfast, and are not, not moved away from the hope of the gospel which you heard. Down to verse 27 here talking about the Gentiles and how God willed to make known the riches of the glory of this mystery among the Gentiles, which is, and in verse 27, which is Christ in you, this is the mystery, which is Christ in you, the hope of glory, him we preach, warning every man, teaching every man in all wisdom, that we may present every man perfect in Christ Jesus. Present every man perfect in Christ. Now, well, how is that done? Well, First John 3, 7, He that doeth righteousness is righteous, as he is righteous, there are passions cleansed, and now we're walking in righteousness. That's how he presents man perfect in Christ. And that's why he that's what he labors. That's what he's striving according to the works that work in him mightily. Paul was striving for this in verse twenty nine. By the works that worked in him mightily. You know, and when I spoke at this uh, wedding recently, uh, I used this uh I look back to my own wedding and how when my wife was walking down the aisle, I looked forward to her and she looked forward to me. It was a joyous occasion. It's like we 
That's old saying, I can't wait. I don't mean it in a literal sense, but that old saying, I can't wait. And when we think about Titus 2.13, the blessed hope and glorious appearing of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ. But why did he give himself for us? That he might redeem us from every lawless deed and purify for himself his own special, unique people, ones who are worthy. His own special people who are zealous for good works. Those are the people who are walking these garments. Those are the people who have these garments. The garments aren't this something that's transferred to you by Jesus Christ. The garments are something where Christ cleansed you of your past sins and hold them against you any longer, and now you walk in white. And according to Ephesians 4, you put off the old man. Let's read that. Ephesians 4, starting in verse uh, 20. <coughs> but you have not so learned Christ. Talking about the way they used to walk in verses 17 through 19. If indeed you have heard him and have been taught by him as the truth is in Jesus, that you put off concerning your former conduct, the old man, which grows corrupt according to the deceitful lust, and be renewed in the spirit of your mind, that you put on the new man, which is created according to God and true righteousness and holiness. So what is the old man equated with here? The old conduct. What's the new man equated with? Walking in true righteousness and holiness. And you continue to prop that because that, that old man's going to want to tempt you to come back. He's going to want to tempt you to go back to the old man, to walk the way you used to walk. We need to put him off and walk in the new man according to the renewal of the spirit in your mind and walk according to true righteousness and holiness, according to the truth that's found in Christ. You read Christ's words, man. You can't get past that. You can't get past that. So these are the ones who, who have not defiled their garments. This man who was in the wedding, who would not belong there, he had defiled garments. Either he had never had his garments washed in the blood of Jesus Christ, or he had, and he defiled him again. And he stayed defiled. Did not go back to the cleansing flood. And he knew it. He knew he didn't belong there. That's why he was speechless. He had nothing to say. No excuses to make. He knew better than to come to the king's wedding dressed in such attire. And those professing Christians who say they can't obey God, who say they can't live holy, they're really refusing to live holy. They're really not willing to live holy. And they know better. No matter what they say with their mouth, they know better. They may be deceived by falsehood, but in their heart of hearts, they know better. They're not going to be able to answer God, well, God, I, I thought I could be here and be unholy. No. They know better. And he was cast out. And there's, a, there's kind of, I guess there's some controversy about verse 14, of course, from the Calvinistic camp here. For many are called, but few are chosen. Uh, the word called there is kletos, and it's an adjective derived from the Greek verb kaleo, which we see all throughout this passage. You see call and invited. Okay, so in verse 3, you see call. That's a verb, kaleo. In verse 3, 4, 8, and 9, you see invite and invited. It's a verb, it's the Greek word kaleo. And then in verse 14, you see called, which is an adjective. It's kletos, and it's derived from the Greek verb kaleo. It's basically saying the same thing. These people, many were invited, but few are chosen. Where's that Greek word eklektos again? When we talked about this, it can mean chosen in the sense of picked out, but it can also mean worthy. It can mean choice. It can mean excellent. It can mean distinguished. And so I think a better translation here would be worthy because that's the same thing you see up in verse 8. Same thing you see there. They were, there are those who were invited were not worthy. I mean, you look through this parable, do you see anything in there where the king, and this is like the kingdom of heaven according to verse 2, do you see anything there where the king is refusing to let people come? He's only choosing to let some people come? That those who are invited and they're rejected because he made them reject it? Or he forbid them to come? Or they didn't come because they weren't were part of the chosen few? We see nothing like that in this parable. So to, to translate it like that is an error in my mind. And if people read into it their doctrine without looking at the context. 
Nowhere in this, I mean, he invited them. They already were invited. He invited them again. They were not willing. He invited them again. They killed his servants. They made excuses about what they wanted to do instead. There's nothing in there that says they were invited, but oh, you weren't part of the chosen few. That's why you didn't come. No, they made excuses. They uh, harmed the servants. They made light of it and went their ways. It wasn't God the Father's doing. It was their doing. And when they rejected, he turned to others. And when his house still wasn't filled, he invited, he invited more. And those who were worthy, as we saw in Luke 14, if we were to go back to that for a second, those who are worthy are those who came. Not worthy in the sense where I deserve eternal life. Not worthy in the sense that I deserve uh, heaven. Uh, but those who consider themselves worthy, those are the ones who decided to come. And think about it for a second. Just in a natural sense here, looking at this parable, in a nat- not in the spiritual, but looking at a natural sense. People who have much, do wedding banquets appeal to them? Do great feasts appeal to them? If they're already in, in, engaging in such feasts all the time anyway, do these things seem in, important to them? No. But those who have little, those who realize they are nothing before God, they desire this. They want this. Those things go, oh, I'm, I, you know, I, got, I got everything in order. I, don't, I have no need of God. God says to him, well, you, you think you have all things. You think you are rich, but you are poor, miserable, blind, and wretched. Come and get in, come to me, and I will dress you in white. And then you will be worthy for the dinner. But this, this verse 14, to twist it and to make it say something it doesn't. First of all, if we're going to take the Calvinist mindset here for a second in verse 14, why is he calling some who aren't chosen? Is it actually a legitimate call? How can it be legitimate? It should be like me inviting someone to a wedding who I really don't want to come. Wouldn't make much sense. Now, I know in a natural sense, oftentimes we invite people to weddings who we know can't come. Okay, Sometimes people invite people to weddings who can't come for ill reasons, maybe because they want to get money or present from them or gift from them. But that's not what's going on here. He legitimately want, he invited them three different times. If he really didn't want them to come, why was he trying to appeal to them to come? But they were not part of the chosen, according to this translation, not part of those who were worthy, not part of those who were excellent or choice. And some people will, you know, I I hear the Calvinists, you know, I've I've dealt with this so many times, I hear their objections ringing in my ears. Well, then you can boast before God because you chose and he didn't choose. Well, wait a minute now. If you have food and you tell a hundred beggars, come and eat, and two come, and they say, ah, I got myself bread. Is that what they're going to say? They're going to be thankful for the person who provided the bread for them. If, if five people are drowning at sea and they're all throwing white preservers and only two of them grab onto it, are they going to say, ah, I saved myself? No. See, people who are truly saved, would, that would never even come to their mind that they can take credit for their salvation. They can say, oh, I saved myself. But such are the twisted objections of the doctrines of men to prove their doctrines. And so when we look at verse 14, friends, you can't take one verse and strip it from its context. So look, the word's chosen there. That, that uh, supplies some kind of foundation for the you of Tulip unconditional election. I picked you, I didn't pick you. I picked you, I didn't pick you. No, he's trying to pick everybody here. He's inviting all. As many as who will come. That's who I want, as many as you will. Whosoever. As John 3.16 says in the, the uh, King James Version. But be careful, friends. Never make light of the Word of God, the things of God. Never make light of, of prophecy. Never make light of Christ's return. If you ever find yourself growing cold or apathetic towards these things, indifferent, you just seek God. Your heart's growing cold. Your heart's growing calloused. Your heart's growing numb. You need to get before God and let your heart become warm again. And let God conform you even more. I mean, this is not just some religion, friends. This is, this is God we're talking about. We're talking about Jesus Christ's Son. And we're talking about our groom. We're talking about our groom. There was never for a second in the four months when I met my wife until we got married that I thought I was indifferent towards our wedding day. That I was apathetic. 
towards spending the rest of my known life with her. I couldn't wait. I was joyful. It was a joyous thing. And friends, Christ is only going to spend eternity with those who keep their garments spotless, undefiled. And if it does become spotted again, go back to the cleansing flood of His blood. Go back to it. Humble yourselves again and let Him cleanse you. He's willing to wash you in the water of His Word, to sanctify you and set you apart. That's what He wants from you. But it's required of you, friends. You must keep yourself white, by the, of course, by the power of the Holy Spirit, not in your own strength, but you must keep yourself white, friends. So this wedding garment that this, this young man, this person didn't have, is he didn't get cleansing of the blood, or he might have at one point down didn't keep himself spotless without defilement and keep his garment the way it's supposed to be. And I guess uh, one other thing I... <laughs> Is the city that's burned up in verse seven? The last thing I'll mention is really go on too much of the main focus of the message, though. But that's obviously, uh, I believe, Jerusalem, which is the punishment for their rejection of their Messiah. That happened in AD seventy. Okay, but in a broader context, this applies to all of us. You're hearing the word of God. You're getting the call. You're getting the invitation. The question is, will you be there at the end? Will you be one of the ones who are invited to respond properly to the invitation, that is, cleansing from his blood and living a life of holiness, and do it until the end? Don't be like one of the foolish versions. Be that chaste virgin who, who Paul says he's betrothed you to that one husband. Just him and him alone. And one last thing I want to say about these what we were talking about earlier is that you know, we talked about you know serving Christ. Uh, you know, even in the hard times, right? we got to be. You know, Brother John was admonishing that we got to be ready for that. You know, the songs we sang this morning. Can you say that in the hard time? Can you say that from a jail cell? Can you say it where you're being beat for His name. You are God alone. Can you say that then? Well, search your hearts, friends. Now is preparation time. Let yourself be prepared. All right. Questions or anything like that? A few things, actually. So I was talking to about this last night. I figured you were going to read through it. Uh, well, I think, yeah, obviously, in the parable, Jesus was addressing the, the, the Pharisees, chief priests. It says from before, you know, they were, he was already talking to them. Mm -hmm. So the person in verse 12 is probably one of them, he's obviously referencing one of them. Mm -hmm. And it may even show that he was invited, but he wasn't righteous. He knew, and he said he, he saw through him. He wasn't really righteous. You were invited, but you weren't really righteous. Why, you know, why did you come in like that? Mm -hmm. You knew better than that. Yeah. You know better than that. And that's like, I, I don't know if he addressed like who he was, but that's actually, right? he's speaking to them. Because like, right after that, they get upset again, so they're going to plot how to, how to catch him <laughs> the words again. Yep. Yeah. Yeah. And it could apply in a broader context oh, yeah, to anyone. Yeah. I just want to talk about the exact yeah, context. Yeah. talking about them. They know talking <coughs> about them. Yeah, I mean, he's talking to the, the whole Sanhedrin. Yeah. I don't think they've left yet, so it's the elders, chief priests, and scribes. Yeah, going yeah. Back and to after it says again, they fought how to, they were probably they were listening to them. Yeah. So they knew he was talking about them. He saw through them. Amen. Um, and then there's one other thing, John, John brought it up earlier, and I, I thought of it uh, in Hebrews 12, when he talked about, uh, you know, uh, suffering and obedience and I always think about this a lot when it comes to fasting. Fasting is a picture of a picture of this to some degree. You know, it's so horrible when you're going through it. You continue to strive through it, and but then when you finally get to eat, you know, it's almost like you forget about what happened. <coughs> you don't want to forget. You want to you remember, but you, it's almost like it never happened. It seems like uh, I don't want to forget like that. But it's kind of like how it will be with our suffering. You know, it's going to be horrible when you get through it. Because you know when you get through it, it's going to be done. Yeah. You want to be done. Yep. But but Hebrews 12, he says, Therefore we also, since we are surrounded by a great cloud of witnesses, talking about the, the patriarchs in the past, let us lay aside every weight and the sin which keeps so easily ensnares us. Let us run with endurance the race that is set before us, looking unto Jesus, the author, author and finisher of our faith, who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross, despising the shame, and has sat down at the right hand of the throne of God. For consider him who endured such hostility from sinners against himself, lest you become weary and discouraged to your souls. 
you have not yet resisted the bloodshed striving against sin. And the thing he's explaining is, I think he's showing, you know, you're going to suffer. Even against bloodshed, you cannot, you cannot sin, either that, even in suffering and pain. Amen. Just like Jesus did. He's definitely our example in that. something too is you know you covered quite well about how a lot of people like to say that the wedding garment is actually uh, uh, the righteousness of Jesus Christ and uh, you know, that that's not the righteousness at all it's actually uh, the righteousness of the saints after we've been forgiven and washed clean and made white uh, and I think a lot of times people will look to the verses that say imputed that were imputed righteousness yep and they have like a modern definition of the word impute that says transfer. And uh, if you look at uh, the uh, original definition of the English word, it meant, means to reckon or to account. And also in the Greek, it also means to reckon and to account. Uh, so even though we're not personally worthy of ourselves, we are counted as worthy. We are counted as righteous uh, because of our faith in what Jesus Christ has done for us on the cross, and to follow Him and do what He wants us to do, uh, that's that's where our righteousness and our worthiness comes from. It's counted to us by God. And uh, so I want to bring that up, because I know a lot of people may be watching the video or something like that. They're going to go, aha, well, He never talked about the verses that say imputed righteousness, you know, and, and they think that that's the closed case that they have whenever they say that. Right. Yeah, Romans chapter 4. Verse 7 says, Blessed are those whose lawless deeds are forgiven and whose sins are, cover sins are covered. Blessed is the man to whom the Lord shall not impute sin. So this imputation here, which is the Greek word legizomai, uh, means to consider as, not hold against. And bas basically imputation of righteousness means this, that your, your past sins are not hold against you, even though they're still there on your record. We see in the, the parable in Matthew 18 of the merciful servant, he can bring the record back into the picture, holds you accountable for the whole record again. But imputation simply means, you see it also in verse 6 and in verse 5. In verse 5 it translates accounted, verse 6 imputes. And then also in Romans 4, uh, verse 3, it's translated accounted, all the same Greek word. It means to consider as, to hold against. Uh, so uh, when we say our passes are forgiven, it doesn't mean that they're like disappeared somehow. Uh, they're still there, but God is not holding them against us. And so that is required for us to be righteous. Because if we have, have some filthiness on our record, it's still being held against us. Even if we live righteous the rest of our life, all that righteousness does not make up for that unrighteousness. Okay, But as long as that's not held against us, we begin to live righteous, now we are righteous in His sight. Now we are righteous in His sight. We're living holy. We're going to be your family. Yeah, that's, that's, thank you for bringing that up, brother. Appreciate that. Uh, in verse 14, I could actually see, in, even though I know it's wrong, how they, why, they would, why they would choose that word, because they don't want to put the word worthy there. They don't want to think we're worthy of actually right. gaining eternal life. I could see out of their fear, maybe, or how they want to translate you as a doctor, and I don't know why they wouldn't choose that word, though. Right. Even though right. I, don't, I don't believe it's right. There's not much of the rest of the time. Yeah. Perfect religion. Yeah. Keep us going spider from the world. Perfect religion. We focus on the uh, widows and orphans part, but that's perfect religion to keep yourself on spider from the world. Mm -hmm. So that's it. Uh, question. Sure. 
I'm going to address right now, but I wanted to bring this one up. Go tell that fox to prepare it, I think. Behold, I cast out demons to form church today and tomorrow, and the third day I shall be perfected. Lord Christ taught me, of course. I believe he was without sin his whole life, and he's perfect. And here he's saying he shall be perfected. And uh, in his death, burial, and resurrection, he's perfected at the end of that process. And I'm just wondering uh, what your thoughts on that are. How that relates to us as uh, active believers that are believers that are actively seeking to be perfect. It, that's talking about bodily perfection there, um, not moral perfection. That's why the third day see, he's resurrected from the grave, has his glorified body. The same perfection Paul talks about in, in uh, Philippians chapter 3, where he says, uh, Let's start in verse uh, 7. But what things were gained to me, these I counted lost for Christ. Yet indeed I also counted all things lost for the excellence of, my no- of knowledge of Jesus Christ my Lord, for whom I have suffered the loss of all things, and count them as rubbish, that may gain Christ, and be found in him, that having my own righteousness which is from the law, but that which is through faith in Christ, the righteousness which is from God by faith, that I may know him, and the power of his resurrection, and the fellowship of his sufferings, being conformed to his death, if by any means I may attain to the resurrection from the dead. Not that I have already attained. Why is that already attained? Resurrection from the dead. Or that I am already perfected. But I press on, I may lay hold of that for which Christ has also laid hold of me. So you see, Paul talking about the same perfection here that Jesus is talking about in Luke 13, that you mentioned, brother. Uh, the perfection of being resurrected, which happened to Jesus first. He was the first one resurrected on the third day. So that's perfection talking about there, but let me just touch on the thing I think I read through there, uh, not having my own righteousness, which is from the law. And he's referring to obeying the uh, the law of the Israelites up, up top, <coughs> uh, righteousness which is from the law. And so uh, he, but he was blameless according to that. Concerning the righteousness which is in the law, blameless. And so you're saying, I put that aside, I consider that as rubbish, and now I have true righteousness, which is by faith. My past sins are forgiven, and I'm walking holy. That's true righteousness. Okay. Um, so anyway, that, that's what Jesus is talking about in Leviticus, I mean, Luke 13, uh, verse 32. The third day I shall be perfected. So the other passage, I can't remember where it is, but he's saying about himself he would be perfected in sufferings. That's Hebrews 12. That's Hebrews. Same thing uh, no, I don't think so. That, that's talking about him learning obedience through suffering. It's completely different here. Maybe it's not 12. That's uh, Hebrews 5. Verse 8. Though he was a son, yet he learned obedience by the things he suffered and hadn't been perfected. He can offer eternal life to all those who obey him. I, I would say that it means he, he made the race to the end. Yeah. That's what it means there. But I don't think it's talking about a perfect body. I think he made the race to the end. He's talking about obedience there. Learned obedience with things which he was suffered. But I suppose it could be talking about his body. What's that um, passage? I think it's in First Corinthians talking about uh, basically the rapture that we're going to be taken up and twinkling by. We're going to put off our mortality, put off immortality. Isn't that basically talking about the same type thing that? Uh, that's the perfection that we're talking about here. Just putting off the mortal body. Yeah, verse 15. Yep. Yep. Yeah, it's not, it doesn't say perfection there. Uh, where, what, what, where, where is that at? 1 Corinthians 15, starting with verse 15. Going through probably the end of the chapter here. But, you know, if verse uh, Hebrews 5 that John brings up, but John brings up in verse 9, uh, and having been perfected, became the author of eternal life to all those who obey him. I think it just means that he 
he persevered to the end in obedience. That's um, why he's been perfect. But then, I mean, it could it could be talking about what you're referring to, brother. So, I can think about that some more personally. <coughs> but Luke 13 is definitely talking about that. The message of the third day. So, but Hebrews 5 is talking about obedience. So. Irenaeus who said that the uh, the uh, martyr's blood is the seed of the church. I think that's what he's talking about. I have to find that passage again. I don't remember where it's at. But he just talked about a seed dying. Unless a seed dies. Unless a seed dies. If it doesn't die, then it And that can be used in both ways. I mean, we have to die that Christ can live in us. Right. Yeah. And so unless that happens, fruit will never come. We must abide in him, the vine. Me to live is uh, me to die is Christ to live. So that's the hope. Christ to me, the hope of glory. 